Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Drawing is so tied to value. I mean, you're just working in black and white and you're creating form. So like for a year, year and a half, that's all I did. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Before we get started, I wanted to say thank you so much to those of you who have donated in the past few weeks and months. You help make the show possible. If you'd like to donate or learn more, head to learntopaintpodcast.com support. This week, I'm talking with the voice you just heard, artist Todd M. Casey. In the conversation, you'll discover the importance of liking your work through each stage, two very different ways to approach making art, and why you've really got to squeeze that paint out. Plus, we get technical as we explore how light moves around an object, and a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 24 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. All right, here we go. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? Kelly, thanks for having me on the show. I, I truly appreciate it. I got started in art, not to start at the beginning of everything, but it really does start there for me. My brother uh, was pivotal. Well, he's three and a half years older than me, and he got accolades early in his life from, I think, my aunt and my mom for being really good at art. And we shared a bedroom, so I didn't like that. So I decided to compete with him. We lived in the same bedroom for about 10 or 11 years. So by then, it was kind of like a thing that we had bonded over. So then how did you find oil specifically? Oils came up about in a roundabout way. I had never touched oils until I went to college. I went to Massachusetts College of Art in Boston. But, you know, at that time, we grew up with a lot of like Norman Rockwell paintings, not originals. I wish we had originals. And uh, by the time I got to college, it was kind of like, how do you achieve like a painting like Norman Rockwell? And I think that's kind of the way I, I came into it. Before then, I had only really drawn a lot and done pen and ink. And then from, uh, you know, college ends up being these exploratory years of trying everything out. Naturally, I think I just bought oil and tried it there and just made a mess. So then how did you come into realism? You know, I had searched for it. I went to undergrad. I wasn't taught the techniques and things that I really wanted to. I didn't have a solid foundation. So I ended up moving to New York, trying to be an illustrator. That's what I got my undergrad in. I was a very bad illustrator. I was so slow. And I still feel like I couldn't draw and didn't know color. And then I ended up doing a, trying a career change by going into animation. So I applied for grad school at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. I thought, well, I can make a living doing that and pursue other goals. And that's actually where I found uh, Warren Chang, who was kind of a pivotal role in my uh, decide to go back into fine art or towards it. So me and him bonded over Roma Rockwell. He loves Rockwell too. You know, I did really well in his class and he said, well, look, if you were ever wanting to do this, you should go back to New York and study with, uh, you know, a handful of artists and Max Ginsburg and Jacob Collins, two of the guys that I ended up studying with. And uh, that's what kind of, you know, serendipitously trying to figure out 
how to make a living doing art is where I found myself back in fine art. And I think I was 28 when I went back and studied and I'm so happy I made that decision. Sometimes you have to go down that road though to, you know, animation was interesting, but it's so streamlined that I would have been kind of like one piece of animation. And the idea of an artist, I think is that you kind of, you know, you're the director of the show, you're putting the whole thing together, you're lighting it, you have the narrative ability so I, I definitely define myself as like a narrative painter. Again, I think from Rockwell. So that's how I found myself into the doorstep of Jacob and also Max because they were back in New York. So I did this kind of like big loop around the United States starting in Boston, New York, San Francisco, and then back in New York and haven't really kind of left since. I mean, we're, we're within proximity now, we're in Connecticut. So once you found oil and, and you kind of knew that you wanted to do realism, how did you find what worked for you and how hard was that to find? It's such a fantastic question. And I don't think there really is an easy way to find out what it is you want to do with it all. Because, you know, we all kind of go in circles of searching for things. And I ended up going back and I was uh, working in art department as a graphic designer for about, I think it was another seven years, 10 years altogether. But that actually helped too, because I actually had an interest in graphic design and I could was not good at composition. I felt like, well, this is all about composition and, and type and color and stuff. And so I ended up, the only time I had to paint was at nighttime. My wife and I met actually at the job, the graphic designers. So we come home and then we eat dinner. And then, I mean, it was like nine o'clock at night. I couldn't hire a model. It'd probably be weird. If they were there till like one in the morning. So I ended up just kind of digging into like the basics and the fundamentals of, you know, where do you start with all this information that you have and how do you get it out? And I think the repetition side of it, of just like going to the studio every day, and that was my living room. And just painting something, getting in the habit. And that's where I just started with like simple forms. So still life kind of found me. Emil Carlson wrote that why not start with still life? It's the basic of all forms. And then from there, I never, never set out to be a still life painter, but I found a love for it. And it gave me the ability to kind of tell the stories I wanted to. It's just weird because you, you follow this road that is your own path with no expectations. I often refer to the Rumi quote, I want to sing like birds sing without a care who listens or what they think. Like, you know, if you go down your path and you find you in there and search for that, I think, you know, in there is when I found this absolute beauty of still life and the ability to kind of tell stories with it. So, and now I wrote a book on it. So it's like, I guess someone took notice. <laughs> I'm still humbled by the whole thing that anyone even said, first of all, that anyone's ever bought a painting of mine. And then that anyone ever suggests to me writing a book and then the fact that the book did pretty well, again, just honored. Transitioning a bit into materials, what pigments do you use and why? For the most part, I use a couple brands. I usually recommend my, my students use Gamblin. Gamblin pigments are great and they're accessible. So, you know, Gamblin's at Michael, it's at Hobby Lobby. If you're going to buy anything, buy a good version of it. So Gamblin is a great brand. I'm switching to uh, Michael Holland because they're fantastic as well. So, I mean, the search for materials, it's, it's just always going to be like an evolution. So if you ask me a, in a week or like a month, it's going to change too. I use Raquel Art Supplies for brushes and panels. They sponsor me now, so plug to them. <laughs> but, you know, they actually sent me stuff first, and then I really loved what they offered because they, again, a very blue-collar guy. It was affordable. Gamblin's affordable. Trakel was super affordable uh, synthetics and uh, they sent me a bunch of free stuff. And, and then anyone who does that, I have a sweet spot for it. The other thing I like is that is one of the things why I didn't like corporate America is that 
you didn't really have a connection to the people you were working with. You, you did have them with the kind of local side of it, but the global side was these companies were like too big. And when you have access, I think, to a company, you can talk to them all the time about their products and answer your questions. To me, that's like honest. And that is the way I, I want to have my relationships. Same way I work with my gallery. If they don't hear from me for like a week or two, they call me to make sure I'm okay. So for materials, those are pretty much the, the two that I use. I don't use a lot of mediums, but I use a Gamsol by Gamblin. Yeah, that's pretty much it. When you say use the best, you use Gamblin paints, but use the best version, do you mean that like when you go to the art store, you'll see like a brand of paint may have student grade paint. They may yeah. sometimes like have a middle grade paint and then they have a professional grade paint. You're saying reach for the professional. I would, yeah. And the reason for that, student grade is never the best. The pigment load is actually not as good as like a professional. So if you're trying to get results and you're looking at people in like museums and stuff like that, they're all using, I can't say that as an absolute claim, but I would imagine that they really consider their craft, that side of it. And I think everybody should as well. So I was on a budget at the beginning and I had a bunch of student grade paints too. And sometimes I actually still pull out a tube, but the properties change and just know that typically oil paints kind of three properties. Typically it's the pigment load, the amount of oil they used, what kind of oil that they used. And then the paint itself can have three properties in terms of opacity, transparency, and semi-transparency. And a lot of the ones that have higher oil content uh, versus pigment load, you're not going to get like an opaque feeling with them. You almost feel like you're pushing around oil a lot of the time. And they also put impurities in it as well. So the, the cleaner, the mixture, kind of like when you go to the food store and you're like, you know, Michael Polo would say, try to stay around the edge so that you're not going for anything with uh, preservatives and stuff. The cleaner the ingredients, so there should be a pigment and then a binding agent, which is linseed oil. The cleaner the label, I think the better. Well, then for your brushes, I've seen some of the demos you do. You work with a pretty small brush. I do. And, you know, a lot of that too is kind of uh, the video demos. But it really is kind of like as a teacher, you're always pushing for clarity and it gets the best shot. Now, when it comes to my work, I do a lot of small work for sure. And I use those small brushes, but I also have bristles and synthetics. I have bristles, I have sables, I have flats, I have rounds, I have filberts. So mark making is, it's such an expressive side of it. I refer to it as brush language a lot of the time because it's just part of the poetic side of it. If you want to, and then there's trompe painters or hyperrealists that don't want marks at all. You know, I think that's whoever the artist is has to make that choice. I don't guide a student into telling them which one they should do. I let them say, here's two ideas, find out which one speaks to you, and then go down the road. Well, then how do you set up your palette? How do you lay out your colors? And you don't have to list every color, but just like, what is your approach to your palette setup? That's such a great question too. You know, typically the workhorse of the palette's always been white. Back in the day, it used to be lead white. There used to be a lot of leads in the old master's work. So they used a lot of earth pigments, which are natural iron oxides. It's pretty much dirt with manganese in it or uh, PBR six or seven, if you're into CIN numbers. Really, that's kind of what I do too. So I'm a, I'm a righty, so I hold it with my left hand. And then I set it up. The workhorse of the palette was usually closest to your right hand. It's like the one you kind of reach for first, which is why you'll see like Rembrandt has it all the way closest into his body. And then from there, I actually go, usually yellow is closest to white because lead white or flake white or cremnance white, another name for it, is depending on which one you use, most of the leads are on the warm side. 
So you start to kind of like start with a warm and then you go into the yellows and then the oranges and then the reds. So it's set up, mine's actually set up like a color wheel where it kind of wraps around the palette. But in every, if you call color hue value chroma, the three dimensions of color, then I set it up by hue first, the six hues, ragey bib, red, orange, yellow, blue, green, violet. And then after that, I have a light mid and a dark version of every color accessible. So it actually sets it up so I kind of have what's typically called a string or a scale. So if I have to make a lighter, dark version of a lime, for instance, I already kind of have one there. And then from there, I can then tip it and say, is it, is it closer to yellow? What's the analogous color to it? Is it closer to yellow or is it closer to blue? And then sometimes I'll add anywhere from like two to three gray colors. So when mixing color, there's three ways to talk about color. It's uh, tinting, toning, and shading. And tinting means that you're adding white to a mixture. Toning means that you're adding gray to it. And shading means that you're adding black to it. Now, color is much more complex than that. But so I actually add my grays on there too, because sometimes I like to, you know, if you get into the chroma, if I found out that cadmium brand is a value five, and then I have a value five gray pigment, I can actually add that to my cadmium red to then make a neutral version of the red. So not everything's like fire engine red. It could be, you know, in that 3D color space of hue value chroma. But you can trust that that will be the same value. So you don't have to then right. make sure it is. You already know. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge you see your students facing when it comes to materials? One of the biggest challenges for sure on materials is that not everyone's always committed to buying the best product. So that's when you get the like, I don't want to call out any brand names, but the student grades are just not good. So when you come over and I'm trying to show a concept and then it's like, I have a student grade version of it. I remember a few times that I was painting with that and it was just like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing because it's just, you're trying to like come to a sword fight with a knife, you know, you just get the wrong tool. That's a big one. I think also a lot of students, when they start out, they want to use a lot of color, but they don't put out big piles. So then it's actually one of the questions I asked one of my mentors too was, how do I paint with more paint? And then he'd come over and he'd look at my palette and he's like, well, you got like no paint on. You got these like barely squeezed any paint on. So you have to invest in this and put out paints. There are ways to kind of slow down the oxidation process of paint too. Like putting it in the freezer will slow it down too. And if you put a touch of clove oil on like a Q-tip, it'll slow down the oxidation process too. But, you know, try to use the tools of the ones that you're trying to study with. And I think you'll have a better translation. It'll be a one-to-one rather than a, you need a Rosetta Stone to try to figure it out. Could you give us a bird's eye view of the process you teach and either your process or the process you teach? You've mentioned before that there are sort of six principles in play. Could you talk about all of those? You know, for the most part, I don't work in one way, but as a teacher, I talk about a lot of different ways, uh, the ways that I like to think. And I, the most success I've had as a teacher is to compartmentalize it. And that's just to say, you know, look, there are principles that everyone has to consider. It doesn't matter what style that you paint. And, you know, for the most part, those principles are idea or vision, setting up your studio and materials, what you're going to paint. So buying like props or doing a figure or finding a landscape, uh, whatever it is that really inspires you. And then after that, it gets into composing. You have the objects now where you're composing them. If you're a landscape, you're going to move them around. You don't just have to paint what you exactly see. From there, it's let's talk about light, because light is going to be the way that we observe everything. And then we have drawing, and then we have color, and then on top of that is kind of form. So everyone wants to jump right to form. They want to render the crap out of things. But it's really kind of mastering every little step. I think breaking it down 
compartmentalizing it in that sense. So I talk about painting it two different ways. It's either direct or it's indirect. And we're kind of flooded with this idea of direct method, which is the a la prima, go for it one shot, go right for it on the canvas. And I think it's kind of the romantic side of it where we think that like, you know, Beethoven just woke up and just started playing. And it's like, no, well, there's another side of it too. And that the opposite side would be an indirect way. And that's kind of how the old masters were thinking where they do a lot of preliminary work. They'd study the objects. And then after that, you could do a tight drawing and then transfer it over your canvas and then uh, monochromatically build it through a grisaille or wash and, and then start to layer in color over the top. I found that that methodology worked for me because look, we'll break it down into little chunks. You master each one of them and then you go on to the next one. And if you don't master it, don't move on. And I think kind of like these two polar opposites and then saying like, here we have it all. There's a lot in the middle. You choose which one is your temperament. It's not about bragging about how many hours or I did this thing in three seconds or 15 minutes or 10 years. I think Alma Tadema or Bouguereau, one of those, one of those guys said that, you know, a painting's done when it's done. And that was one of the things that I didn't like as an illustrator too, just tight deadlines, couldn't do the best work I wanted to do. I had to make me happy and I wasn't making myself happy doing it. I was just like, it's done, but it's garbage. You know, so I think finding out what works for you is one of the biggest pieces of advice I give anybody. Also, what I hear you saying is that you're going to have to contend with those six principles, like whether you like it or not, just because you ignore them and don't actually walk through those steps doesn't mean you won't have to deal with them later. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, like I said, the kind of romantic side is watching somebody just go for it. And you're watching a master who's been doing it for years that just can jump right in and juggle all these things at one time. It's like spinning plates or something, right? And it's like, well, if you can't spin one plate, you're not going to spin six, right? So I like to take each one and break them down. Now, some of these are foundational elements, almost like a foundation or like building a bridge. So for instance, drawing and value are the two most important parts of everything that you do, in my opinion. Value, especially with color, is if you were to basically take your iPhone or whatever and then take a picture and then turn to black and white, you'd see value. You just see a lightness and darkness, just a range of values. Well, obviously, we just took the color out of it. So color is like almost like the icing on the cake that that sits on. Now, drawing is the other one that, you know, if you don't deal with it at the beginning, I think Andrew Loomis had a great quote where he said, master the elements of drawing because if you're going to make a living doing representational work, you don't want to have them kind of hinder you for your whole career. So drawing and value are the two most foundational elements, I think. And, and value from an atelier standpoint, too, and in the training, that's all I did for a year. Drawing is so tied to value. I mean, you're just working in black and white, and you're creating form. So like for a year, year and a half, that's all I did. I just did graphite, and then I started to work into black and white paint, the grisaille. And then you realize that grisaille is what you use to build your color off as well. So the indirect method is built off of years and years, and it ties all the way back to like the uh, renaissance of just being smart about your painting. I think it's sometimes referred to as rational painting. The other one tends to be more expressive, but if your drawing's not good and your color looks great, but your drawing is bad, it's not going to convey the message in a realistic sense, representational sense, sorry. You know, this idea of spending, of taking a whole year and only working in black and white and really focusing on drawing feels like, oh my gosh, that's so much time. But like, if you think about it, if you don't do that, you might spend 20 years fighting drawing. And then you look back and think like, oh, well, if I had spent that one year and mastered drawing, imagine what those 20 years could have been like. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like, that's kind of the way that we approach anything. I mean, no one gets drafted in baseball and goes right to the big leagues. It's like, well, can you hit? Can you field? And then in those big kind of concepts, like, well, can you bunt? Can you run the bases well? Do you know game play situations? And and that's what they do every day. I mean, you know, their games are at almost seven o'clock at night. They get to the field at 12 o'clock and they run through the fundamentals every single day. So it ends up being so intuitive that they're just going to know exactly what happens when a fly ball situation, are you tagging up or are you running? When we're talking about value, that is somewhat of a segue into light and shadow. So mm-hmm. how important do you think is understanding the science of light? Art comes from two different points, the head and the heart. I think that the heart is kind of the emotional side of it, and the head is the scientific side of it. And I think that they have to be in line together. I, I don't want to make anyone mad, but I think that you can go overboard with the science. Daniel Parkhurst, in his book, The Painter in Oil, said, let the scientists be scientists and refer to them. But, you know, the whole point of what we're doing is an expressive quality. So I do think that everyone, to a degree, should understand the basics of physics and geometry of light and what the heck is happening and why we're seeing what we're doing. So two terms that I teach a lot are kind of the optical and the conceptual. The impressionists were more of the optical, you know, because they were painting something that was fleeting, right? The light was changing so quick, they had to react. So you weren't sitting there and going, what the heck's happening? You're just like responding. Monet actually said that if you copy everything in the shapes of the light and shadow, the way that you see them, the picture will be there. You won't even have to know that you painted a portrait of bridge or he painted cathedrals a lot. But then there's the conceptual side of it too, which is like the Leonardo, uh, all the Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> so the, the side that's kind of break the concepts down, you could understand surface anatomy, but then you could also do like a cadaver too. So you could know it from the inside out. You could construct those forms without the thing in front of you. But then also the, the optical and the conceptual should work together as well. And again, that's, a, that's another kind of polar idea. So some people just work optically. Some people just work conceptually. Like, like a comic book artist would be almost all conceptual because they're constructing forms and, you know, Wolverine's not standing in front of them trying to pose for them or the Incredible Hulk. So, but then the optical is kind of dominant too. So, you know, you could just copy exactly what you see in front of you there too. Now, I do think that light and shadow is kind of the start of it. Chiaroscuro was the term in Italian for just light, light shadow. And I'm not Italian, so hopefully I said that right. I should have asked my wife because she's Italian. But really what it is is like, you know, Caravaggio, I think, was one of the first ones to bring or be referred to as that light shadow. Strong light, strong shadow. It's really the basis for everything that we see is light. So why not learn all the terms and uh, what the heck is going on? You'll know what you're seeing. When you go in optical and you go, well, now what the heck is it? And then you're like, oh, okay, it's a half tone or a terminator. There's common terminology that's used in, and that switches too between schools. Okay, so we're going to get technical in just a second. But first, how do you suggest people sort of set themselves up to be thinking in terms of light? Yeah, great, great question. And this is why I say like, draw from life, because you can go up to your setup and just look and be like, there's a light. It's right there. Where on like a photo, it gets a little more difficult where you're kind of trying to figure out if there was a double light source. So for still light painters, I usually say paint in a shadow box. And what that does is it's almost like a a theater set. You're containing the light, right? So like if you've ever been to theater, they don't want you opening the doors, right? They actually tell you you're not coming until intermission because the lighting is part of the performance. So you're containing the light. So you have one light kind of shining into your setup. And usually I'll have one light on my easel as well. Okay. Um, 
could you walk us through some of the basic terms? Like we can all picture this in our minds. We're looking at a sphere and there is a light shining on it. Could you sort of walk us through that? Start with where the light hits, curve around on the light side to the shadow side and then, yeah, light side and then shadow side and then we'll go from there. Imagine light as like a laser beam. And it's not like this, but this is just a simple concept to think about it. If that laser beam were to point right at the form, that's what we call the light most facing plane. I simplify it a little bit. I then say there is half tone. Uh, you know, there's a light half tone, mid half tone, dark half tone. You could say there's light light and then there's dark light. It depends on what school. Um, those are usually the terms in the light. And then from there you have the terminator and the terminator really is just, just the start of the shadow. The form is now turned away from the light and it's not catching any light particles, so it's now in shadow. And then from there, you can go into reflected light, depending on the surface that you're painting. And reflected light is really just light from the environment that then bounces back up and illuminates the shadow. From there, you can have a thing called, I refer to it as a crevice shadow. It's sometimes called an occlusion shadow. And what that is, is just, so on a sphere, where the sphere is actually touching the ground so light can't bounce back up into the shadow. So it actually is the darkest part of the form. Everything is always about like kind of knowing what you're looking at, because then you can see like, all right, to a degree, I think I know what should be happening. And then you find out if it's happening. It's it was at this dialogue with what's in front of you. Okay, so we've made it around the sphere itself. Now we're at the cast shadow. What should we be look for? What is happening in a cast shadow? So the cast shadow is just Light from the form being blocked by the form and casting a shadow onto another surface. Depending on what the surface is, how you perceive that shadow. And then what's happening, because now we can take our concept of laser light and say, well, it's never one light particle, right? So now we have a larger idea of what a cast shadow is. And cast shadow is typically harder edge than a terminator. So you always have that one-two punch there. Not always. 99.9% of the time, you do want to look and, and see it. But then what happens is the closer to a form the cast shadow is, the harder edge it is, and then the further away it usually is being hit by multiple parts of the same light. So because light's not linear, you're actually hitting it from the left and the right side. So light also on a sphere will turn to shadow at 180 degrees from the center. So really half of it would be in light and half of it's in shadow. It just depends on when you're standing and how you perceive where that geometry is happening. Okay, so what is a highlight? And, and what is happening with the highlight? Now the highlight's the most interesting part. So the highlight is actually a thing called the angle of incidence and the angle of reflection, almost like a game of pool. So the highlight will actually meet you on a part of the form that's in between you and the object. And as you move around that form, you'll notice it moves with you. If you walk around a setup, and everyone should do this at home if you're listening, pause it or, or whatever you need to do, walk around the setup. The geometry is the same. You just moved, right? The light is in the same place. The object's in the same place. Your perspective of it has just changed, right? The whole question here is how do you take and add a transition of values, sometimes called a tonal progression? How do you add a strip of light to dark? onto every form to make it look like the thing that you see in front of you. And the highlight, normally you want to roll to the light most facing plane because that just means that it's receiving more light than everything else. So because the geometry doesn't move, 
That's what you should be painting to, the lightest part. And then the highlight is gonna move with you. And it's really kind of always telling the audience, look, the highlight is you in the picture. It's me sitting in the picture. And this is the geometry of where I saw it. Yeah, it's a phenomenal thing. So I used to do my tonal progressions from like the shadow and then to the highlight. And then you get dark again, right? Well, that's weird if, cause you can have the highlight almost right next to the Terminator. If you were like really low, it's like when they're really close to each other is when it gets weird. Then you're just like, I'm going to the highlight. But if you purposely know, you know, I call them brain failures, the things that are going to get in our way and make it so that we just can't see it. But take the highlight off. You can either render it first or last, paint to the light most facing plane, and then deal with it later. It'll mostly resolve that issue. So for you in your process, I imagine your paintings, your big paintings, take a long time. How do you decide that that's the thing you want to paint, knowing that it will be that amount of time commitment? I love that you asked that question. I love that. So look, I can show everyone the technical side of it and what to look for and things like that and how to mix paint, talk about materials all day. Once it comes into the heart side of it, it's extremely difficult. So I usually put a lot of my students through a lot of questions and they're rhetorical. They don't have to be answered. I mean, it's like, ask this to yourself. Like Charles Hawthorne would say, if you don't get excited about the thing that you're painting, how are you going to be able to like sell it to somebody else? Or another one of my teachers said, like, your paintings are probably going to end up on your wall anyway, so why not paint for yourself? Something like that. Now, for me, the way that I work with that concept is that I do a ton of studies and I do a lot of prep work. So if I don't love the painting and I did a study of it, there's no way I'm going to go do a bigger one. So what I try to do is do a study. So I have like four or five setups in my studio, and that's a luxury. I know not everyone has that. A lot of the times I'm trying to give advice to students of like how to work in their dining room or something, right? And it's extremely difficult. So I have a space dedicated to it, which is, I think, a fantastic thing that everybody should be able to do with a door. It's almost like a meditation studio for me. I close the door. I don't think about anything. I focus on the task at hand. And then what I try to do is set up a couple still lives and then always work on something. And then come back and look at it. And if you come back to it every single time and you love it, do a study of it. If you do a study of it, put it to the side for a little bit, come back to it. And actually Malcolm Gladwell, when I listened to his masterclass, does similarly. He kind of writes his outline and leaves it for a couple months and then comes back to it. And he's like, okay, this is good. So if it's good, you'll know right away. If it makes your heart beat, right, then paint it. So you should love the thing that you're doing, especially when it gets to those big ones. Now, to get into the business side of it. When it comes to like making a big painting, it's usually a bigger price tag. And to get somebody to consider that price tag, they should know right away that I love that painting. They should see that it's like, this person probably doesn't even want to part with it. That's how much they love it as much as you do. So love your paintings, do a lot of studies, do a lot of prep work. And that comes with doing, for me, enough paintings that are just sitting around my studio (laughs) or just got hung on the wall and I was like, I just did that thing and it's not a great painting. So then I started to do more of like all the paintings that I wanted to do. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. Definitely have some duds, but again, back to business side, I can also sell my studies and my gallery loves to sell those. And then I can also sell my big stuff and everything in the middle. So I have a wide variety for anybody who kind of wants to buy a painting. But I also really love those little ones. They're like little stories. And sometimes they're just beautiful in the size that they are. And then 
from time to time. I think of the big ones almost too. Oh, this doesn't sound egotistical, but I'm always thinking like the big one should be an award winner. I want to win an award with this big one. That's my intention every time. It doesn't happen all the time. So I'm always trying to be like, this is the one, this is the big one. This is like, I've kind of like collected my data for a long time. Let's make a big, awesome painting. I mean, I imagine also in those smaller studies, you're, you're making sure you understand how the light is working and the color and, and you're doing sort of those technical pieces, but you're also just making sure that you love it and that that takes some time on the subject. Oh yeah. And I'll come back to it. Just look at it. And if you can get yourself staring at your own painting and going like, that's good. That's good. We're artists, man. We're, we're all pretty critical. So for me, it's like, if I can come back in every time and go like, I'm proud of that thing. And I would do a, I would want to do a big one. Yeah. Also the smaller ones afford me the opportunity to study the light, nail the drawing, work out the composition. And a lot of the times I'll have a composition that needed one tweak. And that one tweak to me is like that 5% that just put it over the top to be awesome. You have painting training, you've been painting for a while, and even still for you, it takes time to understand when something is not working, not just when something isn't working, but then figuring out what it is that's mm-hmm. not working. That, that that kind of never goes away, but that also it's not innate knowledge. No, for sure. And there are tricks and tips that you could do, like you could grab and flip your painting upside down, and it gives this kind of like sense that you're looking at a new thing. So a lot of what happens is oversaturation. We look at things too much, right? And then we just can't judge them anymore. And we're judges. That's what we do. I think you want to be able to judge yourself because hopefully you're sharpening your skills all the time and the way that you see things. So the tricks for me is kind of like, and you hear it across the board. So I look at like Malcolm Gladwell and go like, well, look, he does something similar to what I'm doing. He's taking the script and putting it aside for a while and then coming back to it to see if it's garbage. And if it's good, he's going to work on it. But he also collects. I mean, his stories are always like, I went down this kind of rabbit hole and talked to this guy who was like the ketchup king at, uh, you know, and he was like, I don't even know where I'm going to use that thing. And then he ended up using it later, but he had kind of a, a library that he had created, a neural network that he could pick from later. So I think some of the tips and tricks would be like grab a mirror and try to look at it from the side. You can kind of flip it up. A black mirror works sometimes too because it compresses it. And then other tips and tricks are just to walk away. Give it a rest for a couple days or ask a loved one. My wife comes in sometimes and I go, what do you think? And if she doesn't know what the heck it is, I mean, we're doing representational work. So if I failed to represent the thing, then I failed if the concept is not clear. So love your paintings, spend the time with them, but also distance yourself from them as well. I think you'll be able to judge them better. Sometimes I'll just look at a painting later and go like, oh, that was interesting. That was a different me. And then I want to kind of like talk to myself and go like, did I know more then? (laughs) Hopefully we're always growing. I think the Nietzsche quote, the serpent that cannot shed its skin must perish as are all bad ideas. You know, we're always trying to make ourselves better every day. At least my intention. Where in your process do you really consider things like composition and design? Light to me is actually the start of composition. So I actually play with light. In terms of that chiaroscuro, idea that you had said that light and shadow can be at play. They're dancing together, almost like the yin and the yang. And you can use light and shadow to compose as well. And one of the ones I think about all the time, and I was taught this by one of my mentors, Thomas Fluharty, who was an illustrator and he's fantastic. I went to a studio and I showed him a painting. He was not impressed with it. And it, to me, it was like the best thing I'd ever done. And I was just like, this guy is so good. How come I can't impress him, right? And he said, there's a concept 
by Seth Godin. There's actually a book by Seth Godin called The Purple Cow. What he's trying to say in there is that if you drove down the highway and you saw cows, you wouldn't stop, right? But if you saw a purple cow, you would stop and be like, what is that? And he was saying, be that purple cow. So if you're going to show me something, knock my socks off with it. But show me something maybe that's not done or you did a little bit differently. So that's where I bring that, the Delacroix quote, which was like, you know, I'm bastardizing it. What influences men and women, obviously, is that what's been said is still not enough. Like you can, you can twist things a little bit and still say the same thing, but don't deliver the same. So I always keep that in mind of like, has anyone thought of a different way to kind of compose or think about this? And a lot of artists work with a fixed light. It's always in the same spot. But for me, I started to get into kind of moving the light around. I started to flip it underneath, kind of give it the creature double feature look, and then thought like, where can that come in handy? So when I did like pumpkin paintings and Halloween, I thought like, how awesome is it to get like a kind of creepy looking painting? So I'm very playful in everything that I do. And to me, composition is like the start of how do you get the audience to interact with your painting? Now they can just love the object if you're just painting simple, beautiful objects. But I started to look at the great narrative storytellers, like to me, Norman Rockwell, a lot of the illustrators, Dean Cornwell, Harvey Dunn, Howard Pyle, a lot of the storybook illustrators. And they had just had all these tips of like, you know, you could put a finger in and point to the left and say, look over there. But you could also do it with color as well. So composition for me is where graphic design really helped me. And now it's actually one of the biggest compliments I get if I do a win an award is just, your composition is uh, fantastic, so. So you're clearly doing that when you're, well, clearly you're always thinking about composition and design, but then you're doing that in the setup and light. And then does that move into a sketchbook or are you sort of sketching and thinking throughout this entire process? Yeah, great questions. I do both. One of the things that we can dominate us, the way that we think of things is to just see them and be like, there it is, done. But I'm not sure if that really is the most artistic way to do it. I think, you know, talking with a lot of artists too, I was talking to John DeBarton the other day and he was talking about the idea that the old Dutch used to do a painting of the idea before they had any reference and then go find the reference for the painting. And it's like, well, you paint your ideas in that sense, right? It's almost like comic book artists, like they're not using the optical, they're all conceptual, right? Well, the optical can dominate us so much that you're just like, the beauty is right there in front of me. I don't have to change a thing but it isn't necessarily what you always have to do. So I like to sketch in my sketchbook and I joke all the time and say like, next time you're at the DMV, bring your sketchbook because you're going to be there for a couple hours. The irony is that I went to the DMV a couple weeks ago and I didn't bring mine. So it's like, do as I say, not as I do, but get into the habit of composing by yourself. A great assignment that I was given by one of my instructors was he called the teapot tea kettle. And he's like, you got two minutes, give me 30 sketches in your sketchbook, fly around it as if you're in a drone, like go. And you start to kind of think like, wow, you know, like almost like a, if you're doing video, like what's the best shot for this thing? You don't really know always until you're kind of in it, but also video and movie, they work with storyboard artists to kind of get the idea out before. They're not going to shoot this whole test film. They're working with storyboard artists first to get the visual element worked out. And then they're still going to change it a little bit, but they've got it all worked out to go with the story. So I would say do both. I take a lot of photos of my setup so that if I do have downtime and I'm going to get a coffee and I want to like look at that setup and see if it was good or not. And then I also sketch in my sketchbook. So composing in both aspects, I think are just, but it depends on what you have for time too. You'll meet a lot of artists that do one or the other. And that's the beauty of it all is that I've met artists that start in the bottom left-hand corner of a painting and then render everything perfectly and then end up at the top, right? 
I've seen artists that do a la prima, which is always kind of like watching a magic show. I've watched artists that just do slow, meticulous layers. Like Maxville Parish would do a underpainting in just blue. It's called Parish Blue. And then he would just do every, almost like CMYK printing, every one color over the top of it. So slow, but kind of knowing that all these things exist are fantastic because then you have a toolbox to pull from all the time. I imagine that the way you do your studies is different than the way you do your big pieces or, mm -hmm. it, okay. So then actually, can you explain the difference of how you do your studies versus how you actually build up the, the big paintings? I use my poster study as a guide for my larger one, if it makes it there. And really what that is, is like you're trying to do the small painting in like three to four hours to capture the light, work out the composition, not think of the details. You're just, that's why we call it a poster study, almost like a small miniature version. Because when it comes to doing, let's say a, a four foot by three foot painting, if I'm doing a slow rendering of what we call light drop off, almost like, you know, in Tim's Vermeer, he talks about it too, of like, typically that the eye can't see a transition of values that's happening very, very slow. We see like, we're better at seeing contrast. So when things are going really slow, you could actually swatch it and go like, well, that's darker on the right than it is on the left, but I can't see it. So when things like that happen, you can actually, you could kind of like put little anchors in your larger painting and paint very, very slow in a larger area by finding what those anchors were on the small picture that you made. So the poster study ends up being a picture thought out all together in one step, almost like a la prima. And the bigger one tends to be like, you're building it up in layers, you're rendering one object at a time, you're going slower. So rather than use like a full value scale in a small area that you could destroy the picture if you did it, you end up kind of using it as a key to use for the bigger one. Now, I don't always do that because my gallery always wants the works. And I'm always like, I got these small ones. And they're like, we'll take them and they, they sell them. And then I don't have them for the bigger ones. So I've grown accustomed to just going for it. <laughs> good problem, I think. That's a good problem. But that they are your anchor points. They let you know like, okay, because in the big one, there's such subtlety. How do I know when I've gotten to like, how do I know that I'm at the edge of the shadow and it should be this value? Like, well, you've worked that out. Right. As a picture. Because what happens with a lot of these, this is why I love talking about like brain failures too. We have a thing called the simultaneous contrast, which always fails us every time. And it's just that if you took the same swatch and you put it on white, like let's say gray neutral number five, and you put it on black, it would appear really light on the black and uh, really dark in the white. So what's happening a lot of the times is like we're being fooled, but the sum of the parts equal the whole. You need every piece in that jigsaw puzzle for it to make sense but you'd only get one clue at a time. So the small painting makes it so that you don't want to paint details. You just paint the major forms with no detail, but you're making these decisions together. You can usually paint a four inch by six inch or something smaller in one setting. Uh, sometimes I can even knock them out in an hour, but they just inform that big one so much more. Well, and you're also training your eye to see things because you're spending time with it. Like, like even with all of the skills, like if you just jumped into that big painting cold, there's just a bunch of stuff you wouldn't see. Yeah, and there's so much mapping going on that by the time I do the big painting, I've studied that form, I've studied that light, I've thought about that color. You just feel like you're in control and then you're just executing. So a lot of the time when I paint, I just listen to a podcast or it's really just kind of like absorbing information from the outside now. I'm painting. I, I don't even think about it anymore. But then sometimes I do have to take a step back, take a break, and then be like, okay, let me judge it now. Is the, is the color right? Is the drawing still working? 
And also, you're not spending that time worrying. By the time you're getting to that big painting, you can turn off your brain a little bit and listen to a podcast because you have already quieted all of the voices of saying like, well, what if I don't like it? And you're like, well, no, I, I like it. Like, well, what if I don't know what's happening? Well, no, I, I do. Like, you've already shushed all of those things that just like naturally come up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of concentration that should happen. And uh, you can get yourself into autopilot where you're, you just know what you're doing. And, you know, all these concepts are really just tools of just like, how do I think of drawing and then compartmentalize it? I've read studies that say like, you know, we think we can multitask, but we can't. Like I tried to, the other day I was doing something, I forget what it was, but I was like, hold on for a second. I'm just trying to write my email. It's like, you can't write an email and have a conversation with a person and then not have that conversation as what you're about to send somebody else. So the ability to kind of concentrate, you know, like I think of it like music. A lot of it is like a setup for a thing. Let loose when you want to. You know, I think the scientific side of it becomes, well, I don't want to ever measure. And you're like, well, it's just going to help you to check quickly. It's like calling in the engineer being like, all right, I, I built this thing. Is it going to fall over? I think there are two concepts that should always be kind of married together. So just like the yin and the yang. If you have a big black area, you can have a tiny bit of white. And if you have a big white area, you can have a tiny bit of black. But just check it that one small time. It'll go a long way. It seems like there's such an instinct, especially when people are first getting started, that color on canvas is the only thing that counts as painting that there's such mm-hmm. like a rush and urgency to get to that. And it, there's like an anxiety to get to that. Why is that? I think a lot of what's happened is that we're dominated right now by like the impressionist break from the classical mode was a great thing, but it was also a thing that became this spontaneity side of it, of creating art. And I think that's where it's like the direct method is taught everywhere now. So it's kind of like jump into the deep end, even if you can't swim. And then we're going to try to get you out, right? Or try to teach you how to swim when you're in it. Where it's like, well, or you could come in the shallow end and slowly go into the deep end. So I think a lot of what's dominated the way of teachings, especially in like colleges. So for me, it was like, I heard all these echoes of things. I didn't understand where they came from, but I've been able to kind of pick them apart over the years and just say, where the heck does that come from? And a lot of you know, I'm from the Boston area and Boston School of Painting was dominant in the Northeast and I think throughout America. And you hear it. So I would hear like warm light, cool shadow. And I would be like, where? Like, I don't see it. Now it has its place. If you're talking about the impressionists, they would be overstimulating their cones because you'd be like painting in full light and they're trying to get light, especially on like a sunset or something. So what happens with your cones? Like if you overstimulate them by looking at a light, it's what's called the after image. You actually see the opposite of that color. Now, that doesn't mean that if I'm painting a lime, the light part of it is a green, which is pretty, it depends on what side of green you are on the cool side. And then the opposite of that would be kind of red on a traditional wheel, of course. And then I should now see right in the shadow. That would make sense to me. But you can talk about warm and cool relatively. So a lot of these things I had to dig into and be like, I've heard this thing. And everyone I I talk to has heard these things like, don't ever paint with black. I was like, all right, so what about Manet and Sargent and Whistler? They all painted with black. So some of them are just dogmas handed down. And it's better if a teacher can explain why you would think that way. And it's totally fine to think that way. Now, I've actually traced it back to a quote, I think, by Renoir who basically said, one day we forgot our black tube paint and Impressionism was born. 
And it's like, well, yeah, he was mixing his blacks. Okay, well, that makes sense. So the impressionists are kind of optical and they're more interested in kind of adding color to things and playing with the optical color mixing, breaking colors up and having you stand back and seeing them almost like you would Starry Night or a Van Gogh or something like that, right? Or Surat, the evening in the, uh, in the park, I believe. But it doesn't mean that that's just, it needs to make its way into every painting, especially if you're doing classical realism. So I think that once you learn the terms and then you go, okay, so why am I going to just go for color? Why am I just jumping into it? And you could try the thing just to say like, okay, like Rose Fratson does it. And I'm always amazed, but it looks like she's great at putting on a show. And I would love to paint that way, but it's not the way that I think. And I love watching her paint. I just know I would probably be frustrated doing it. So it's finding your temperament, I think, just, I love her paintings, by the way. So if someone came to you and said, I want to be really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Oh, that's such a loaded question. Um, it's so hard because, you know, one of the things I do for my students is I, when I was teaching at Mass Art in Boston, I would take them to the Museum of Fine Arts Boston because it was right next to it. And the Garden Museum is right next to it too, which to me is one of the best museums in the country. I would just say like, walk into the room and then whatever grabs you, don't look at names, whatever grabs you, go have a dialogue with it. Still don't look at the name and find out what it is that's calling you. And that's a great place to start for maybe what it is that you're looking for in art. Everyone comes at art from a different perspective. Some people are doing it for therapy. Some people are doing it. A lot of the time I would ask myself, I don't even know why I'm doing it. And I actually tried to take it out of my life. I was a mailman for a year. And then I just thought like, what if I took it out do I have to have it? And then I knew, I just knew I had to do it. So we all do it for different reasons. Finding whatever that reason is, somewhere between the head and the heart, I think. Maybe you're all the way to the head, maybe you're all the way to the heart. And then from there, just follow your bliss. Find the thing it is that you want to do. And I think Dean Cornwell said, be inspired by the masters, but don't do versions of their paintings. Be true to yourself in that sense too. It's so hard to tell anyone what they should paint or shouldn't paint or how things should or should not look. I think some schools can help you, but I also think you have to kind of, you know, Robert Frost poem, right? I, I chose the road less traveled by and that made all the world. You have to find what it is that you're looking for. And I can't always help someone with that. I can help them more of a clue like a lighthouse. Watch out for the rocks. But I think the slaying of the dragon or the hardest part is your, your call to say like, I got to figure this out and it's on me. You can find more about Todd M. Casey at his website, toddmcasey.com, and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Todd. Thanks for having me. Truly appreciate it. It's been an hour. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 24 for show notes and to add your name to the newsletter list. And if you like the show, consider donating. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support to learn more. Happy painting!